From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Dominican Father Brian Mullady is in the house. If you'd like to ask Father a question, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 12052712985 you can always send us an email openline at ewtn.com or you can text your question to father text the letters ewtn to 55000 wait for a response text your first name and your question message and data rates may apply I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Thursday, Father Brian Mullady, how are you? Just fine, thank you. Um, so talk to me about this furniture worship. Yes, the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter we had this week. <laughs> and people want to know why we're worshiping a chair. You're right. <laughs> uh, the chair, you know, is just a symbol. And it's called uh, the cathedra, from which our word cathedral comes. And it was customary in lecture halls and in many places. Today we even refer to this in universities as the full professor gets the chair because he sits to give the lectures. Well, it's a similar thing for bishops. And in the case of the chair of St. Peter, it represents authority, but it represents the authority of the Roman pontiff. If you go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, they have an absolutely beautiful, um, it's, I guess it's supposed to be the covering of the chair. They, this is the relic. And I believe it was done by Bernini. And on the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter, they literally cover it with candles. And it's not a piece of furniture we're worshiping. What we're doing is calling to mind the authority which Christ conferred on St. Peter. And, of course, you know, the two big texts to this are the, the classic one where Peter's given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But the other one, which is also used in the Mass, interestingly enough, which is less known, is Luke twenty-two thirty-two, which really expresses the Petrine authority quite well. And that's where Jesus says to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, in believing, strengthen and confirm your brothers. Well, who are the brothers in that case? The brothers the Lord is referring to are the bishops, the first, the apostles, 
of whom the bishops are now the successors. So what Christ is doing is conferring upon an office in the church, which of course is the earthly church, so it's occupied by a human being, the uh, aid of God in expressing what the unity of our faith and doctrine is. And that's why we say things like the Pope is infallible in faith and morals. Now, what does that mean? When the doctrine of the infallibility was debated in the First Vatican Council in 1870, many people were horrified in Europe because they thought that we were trying to return to the absolute right of kings and that whatever, you know, the Pope would wake up in the morning and decide that the weather will be such and that's somehow an infallible teaching we all have to lockstep to. Uh, there was an English author who said that Catholics acted as though they needed an infallible decree with the London Times every morning. Well, these people who say these things totally misunderstood what was actually involved. First of all, mo most church councils, Vatican II was really an exception, have been called to answer errors. And the error that Vatican I was called to answer was called Gallicanism. According to this error, the name Gallican comes from the French church, the there was a, a, a whole theory of uh, the church abroad and commonly taught that papal teachings didn't bind you to assent or to obedience without what they called the posterior consent of the country, either the king or the episcopacy. And this theory had reached such a, a, a common uh, understanding that I believe it was in 1770 when the Catholic powers of Europe, that would be Spain, France, and Austria-Hungary, got together and decided that the Pope would be the last Pope because the kings now would govern the church. And, of course, they were all done away with in the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolution. And when Napoleon made his peace with the church, he specifically chose the Vatican as uh, transcending all the disputes that had occurred in France about the national church versus the universal church and things like that. So in Vatican I, they were very, very solicitous to try to say, first of all, the church is not the state. The church has a different purpose than the state. And authority in the church really is not a democracy. It's not an oligarchy or aristocracy, and it's not a monarchy. It's a hierarchy based on service and love and as founded in the truth of Christ. They had a long debate about this in Vatican I with all the different sides, you know, arguing about it, including Pius IX, who got somewhat involved in it, all the popes don't really attend the council sessions. And at the end of the council, there was an address given by a bishop named Gosser, who was an excellent theologian in which he sought to define what exactly they were trying to define with the infallibility. And what he said was this, the infallibility of the Pope is a charism connected to the office of the papacy. It's a charismatic grace. Therefore, it can be exercised by a person who may personally be in the state of mortal sin but God isn't stymied by the weakness of his instruments in order to have the papacy express unity with the church. 
And so may, because it's a charismatic grace, it's given only at the time when definitive statements are made where doctrines are taught in unity with what all the church has always believed. Also, and this was part of his address, and by the way, it was accepted by the council fathers as the correct interpretation of their statements, that the Pope is infallible by his teaching and not by posterior consent of the church. Uh, there were two basic subjects or recipients of this gift. The first was the church as a whole, which means the faithful and the bishops. But of course, the bishops here include the Roman pontiff, the Pope, in his unique role to unify the church, or the Pope alone. So in Vatican I, the Pope alone was taught. In Vatican II, what they did was emphasize the whole church together with what they call the College of Bishops. But the college wasn't interpreted as a parliament. It wasn't like England, where you have a constitutional monarch, and then you have uh, you know, the, the parliament that can fight the monarch, or they can disagree, or one can try to overcome the other, or whatever. Now, the term college there merely means a permanently fixed assembly. So in other words, what the apostles were to Peter, the bishops are to the Pope, in a long apostolic succession, which is unbroken for 2,000 years. The Pope's infallibility is only connected to those places where he's trying to express unity of Catholic doctrine, not to anything else. If he, for example, has an opinion that uh, such and such a person shouldn't experience capital punishment, or such and such a war is unjust, well, we have to listen respectfully and consider his teaching, his ideas there. But he can't bind the church to assent about this. It has to be a general teaching which transcends time and expresses our 2,000-year history. Now, on the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter, that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the charismatic grace which is given to the Pope while he is in office in which he is able to express the unity of doctrine because Christ has prayed for him that his faith may not fail so he will strengthen and confirm the bishops in their teaching. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Join a deeper conversation about the most consequential issues facing Catholics today on EWTN News In-Depth with Monse Alvarado and... You can get EWTN News In-Depth delivered directly to your email inbox with details on each week's show. Simply go to EWTN.com slash in-depth and sign up today. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd be happy to talk to you. That number is one 205 271 2985. And uh, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line if you are outside of North America at 1 205 271 2985. And uh, you can always send us an email openline at ewtn.com. I would be remiss if I didn't mention there's uh, a little bit going on in the world, Father, uh, uh, today as. It has Lord knows. The, the revelation of the invasion of uh, Russia into Ukraine uh, has been demonstrated uh, to us, and we here at EWTN have uh, colleagues at EWTN Ukraine in Kiev. Oh. So I would uh, encourage all of our um, EWTN viewers and listeners to please keep those good folks that are about the business of spreading the gospel under difficult circumstances in Ukraine and, and around the world, wherever. Uh, you know, we, we forget that there are people that put their lives on, on the line, even in the 21st century, for the spreading of the gospel. And we should always keep them in our prayers, huh? Exactly. You know, the Dominicans have been in the Ukraine since the 13th century. Wow. And we during the brief hiatus of communism, uh, you know, Stalin, et cetera, we weren't there. And our priory in Kiev... Uh, was turned into a museum of atheism under Lenin and Stalin, <laughs> but uh, we've we've been there for quite some time from Poland, you know. So, so keep them in your prayers if you would be so kind. We've got an email here from Anthony, and he says, "How do we talk to people doubting God because they don't understand pointless suffering? It's a stumbling block for a lot of people." Oh, it's you know this question of the suffering, especially of the just. Uh, or the innocent, is very difficult for many people to get over. Uh, the book of Job is, of course, that's its primary theme. And uh, when St. Thomas came to comment on the book of Job, and his commentary, though it occurred in 1200, was the first attempt to make a literal commentary on the book of Job, because a lot of people couldn't understand how Job could have been just, and yet curse the day of his birth. He basically says this is one of the most difficult problems in all of theology. And what it demonstrates is, with Job anyway, that he fears God for right intention and right reason. Because remember, that was the accusation of Satan. Not for nothing does Job fear God. Uh, he wanted Job to fear God for a selfish motive, and he accused him of that. And also, it's the first place where we kind of bridge the gap where the afterlife is very much discussed. Now, I know modern scripture scholars don't like this interpretation, but you remember in the book of Job, they have that famous line, I know that my Redeemer lives, whom I myself shall see at the after I die in my body. So there's kind of like a, um, a prophecy of the resurrection of the dead. And what you have to, it's, I don't know how well you can argue this. The first thing is not to try to explain it, for example, through a person whose child has suffered from a disease, although part of that is just due to the way germs exist. It has nothing to do with God or to the, the child. Also, if somebody gets killed in a car accident, well, that isn't God's fault. Uh, 
And it isn't the suffering person's fault who died. It's the person who was so careless in the traffic laws. So the fact that we have people who uh, completely ignore the law of God is part of the explanation of the suffering of the innocent. The fact that we have physical illness, physical disease, people that are born with deformities and things like that, nature's not absolutely perfect materially in the way material things are reproduced. And so that's partially due to nature. Now, how do you come to deal with it? Well, uh, there are many, many avenues today to encourage people who've been born with deformities or even been born perhaps with uh, what they would call a challenge today, that they're challenged. And they're challenged despite physical weaknesses to still discover their personhood and their moral self and also to remember that God never abandons them. One of the classic examples of this is a, a person who was just canonized who probably people want to become the patroness of the unborn, and that's Blessed Margaret of Costello, because she was born blind and she was born horribly deformed and a dwarf. Her family couldn't stand her. They locked her up in a room with no doors and just fed her through the door, but she the, had a window in the room that opened to the chapel, and she lived in the Middle Ages in Italy, and she came so much to appreciate the mass and things like that. Well, then they went to this place in another city to try to get her healed because there was a saint that was supposed to heal people of this, and when she didn't get healed, they just abandoned her on the gutter. And finally, a family took her in, and... Uh, she eventually joined a convent, but the sisters couldn't stand her because she was so holy and looked so awful that they, they were jealous, so they threw her out. And she became a Dominican tertiary, a third order member, and she basically spent her life visiting the prisons and things like that. And she converted all kinds of prisoners because they couldn't understand how this horribly deformed person could be so full of joy and love of God that they'd convert too. So it's a question of trying to help people realize that our dignity doesn't depend on how we look or what we have or something like that. It depends on the fact that we're creating the image and likeness of God. Now, if you can bridge that gap even a little, I think you can open people to the idea that there is some sort of providence in God's hand in this. We don't always understand it totally, and I wouldn't try to explain it to certain people. I just grieve with them. But, uh, especially with children, when children are involved. But still, there is some sort of providence in this that we, we don't see. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. First up today is Dan in New York City listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Dan, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. And, Father, here is my question. There's so much confusion in the pews, and I'm not blaming you, of course. What I'm talking about here is uh, the leadership of the Church does not make clear that you cannot be a practicing Catholic and support abortion in any way. My non-Christian friends ask me, how do you have all of this confusion? And I say, well, you know, don't blame your local priest. Uh, 
Please? So, so what's your question again? How's there confusion? Uh, ever since uh, Vatican II, and it wasn't Vatican II's responsibility, it was the 60s. It all occurred together in this kind of ferment that unfortunately produced the result that the pre bishops of Vatican II never intended, that's for sure. There's been a strange theological current in our church where people who got academic positions, especially of teaching theology, felt somehow called upon to question our traditional doctrines. In fact, this got so acute in the 80s that they had a synod, if you recall, when they celebrated the 20th anniversary of the closing of Vatican II in 1986 at Rome. And all the bishops who were president of this said, you know, we really would like a clear statement of what we actually believe because we're not even sure. <laughs> With the 20 years of theological ferment, especially the universities, what we still actually believe. And that's when they produced the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So a lot of the confusion comes from our academic institutions. And the more these academic institutions are taken over, for example, by people who aren't Catholic, uh, you know, there are a lot of Catholic universities where they allowed in people who weren't Catholic, not necessarily to teach religion, but they took over the academic senate. And so they reduced uh, theology to religious studies, and religious studies was reduced to maybe one class you had to take, and that was like comparative religions. So there was no common front presented in the academic institutions. I would personally, of course I was a teacher most of my life, but I've seen it firsthand in many places, and even in Rome, in Roman universities, you know, a lot of the a lot of the strange ideas came out of Roman universities in the 60s. And uh, I think it's because of a lack of faith and also a lack of proper presentation of theology in our academic institutions. Thanks, Dan. We appreciate the question today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Marie is in the great state of North Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Marie, you're on with Father Brian. Hello. My My question is this. Does a bishop have the authority to make a new cathedral? A new cathedral? You mean to build a church? Um, or to make a bigger, larger church, the cathedral. Yes, he does, with the permission of Rome, of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. What what particular church is used of the, as the cathedral is a, a matter of, it isn't a matter of God's law or anything, so yeah, he, canon law provides for, for that, yeah. And some churches start out as just parish churches and... You know, uh, right here in Birmingham, Alabama, is a perfect example for the first uh, so many years of Catholicism in Alabama. There was one diocese for the entire state, the diocese of Archdiocese of Mobile, and uh, when they established the diocese of Birmingham, they took the St. Paul's Parish and made it the cathedral. Well, and the same thing has happened to us in Anchorage, because we were running the cathedral which was a parish church, a converted parish church, and it was actually a rather ugly one. Although our uh, 
one of our priests made it as beautiful as you can do it. But then they recently divided the Diocese of Anchorage, Archdiocese of Anchorage, into Anchorage and Juneau. And so they moved the cathedral to another church in Anchorage and another church in Zuno, and we're not the cathedral anymore. So, yeah. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. We'd like to congratulate two of our EWTN family members, Aquinas Communications, KCRD in Dubuque, Iowa, celebrating their seventh anniversary this week. And Catholic Radio Indy, with two FM stations serving Greater Indianapolis, uh, launched that first station 18 years ago. Uh, congratulations from all of us here at EWTN Radio. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Roy. He is in Baltimore, Maryland, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Roy, you're on with Father Brian. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jack. I spoke with you one time last fall, Father, and the reason I'm calling today is that a few weeks ago on Raymond Arroyo's EWTN Live, uh, he got a number of responses back on what we, the viewing audience, would be interested in with regards to the Synod on Synodality, and the number one was Better Catholic Teaching Father and Evangelization. And I'm right in that boat. Uh, and I guess my question is, for Lent this year, instead of giving anything up for the benefit of myself, I would like to work with maybe parish members, even my own family, with regards to conveying to them my best understanding of Catholic teaching. So. I, what I'd like to be able to find out, and I know you could say, Roy, go to the, you know, to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. How would I better, best understand, or where would I go to become very familiar with, so that I can convey and, and evangelize others with uh, true, authentic Catholic teaching? Uh, well, I don't know. To me, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is the best place for uh, what your purposes are, which is to deepen your faith during Lent. Uh, if you wanted a source that would help you with the readings, um, to help see the readings in their relationship to Catholic doctrine for Mass, the one excellent one is Divine Intimacy, uh, which is by Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene. You can get it from Ignatius Press, and you can even get a ebook of it. And it it has it's four volumes actually it's all the readings for the whole year, but the Lenten ones are especially good. The Lenten meditations are especially good, or um, you know the Opus Dei has a series in conversation with God, and and they have excellent meditations also. The value of the Divine Intimacy one is the meditations are very short, but they're on all, all the readings and they're uh, very well done as far as doctrine is concerned. 
So the catechism would be good, something like divine intimacy would be good, something like in conversation with God would be very good, those things. Does that help? Much, Father. Yes, it did. And then, Jack, I just wanted to add, I think EWTN is doing an excellent job in addressing this, because there have been little cartoons near the top of the hour for a filler in which they're starting to, uh, you may be familiar with it, at the very end of the cartoon it says, cafeteria closed, but it's a way of saying, uh, it's a a way of conveying to us what is, uh, uh, what true Catholic teaching is, and they had a couple of uh, little quips on the Holy Spirit, and to better understand uh, what the Holy Spirit's role is, and if you're not believing this, then you're really, you know, you're not practicing your Catholic faith. So thank you very much, Father, for an excellent answer, and thank you, EWTN, for trying to help us to be, become better uh, uh, students of Catholic teaching. Thank okay. you, and God bless you both. And happy Lent. EWTN. There's an open line for you at 833-288-3986. Michael is in Fairfield, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Michael, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father Brian. Hi. So my question that I have for you is one that I've kind of heard kind of back and forth uh, on, on two different sides. Um, I presently wear both the green and brown scapular, and my question for you today is, I've heard people talk about it just being just another sacramental. Some people say that it's kind of, you know, something that's kind of fallen out of the Church fashion. Other people have said that the brown scapular in itself um, has a greater worth, and they've said that um, apparently those who've received the premonition of wearing it state something along the lines of, you know, the Holy Mother Mary stated that whoever dies uh, cloaked in this uh, should not suffer the eternal flames of hell. And I'm looking to kind of get some elaboration on if that means that it's essentially, for lack of a better word, a get-out-of-hell-free card, or if those fires that they're talking about have been misconstrued, misconstrued, and perhaps they're talking more along the lines of the purification process that one might go through in purgatory. Can you help me out with this? Well, first of all, you don't get out of hell. You can't. Once you're there, you're there, period. There's no coming back on that. Uh, Regarding the language of the scapulars, some of it's meant for popular consumption, and I would interpret that as purgatory. Also, I think we need all the help we can get, so if the green one and the brown one help you, that's fine. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I have a scapular, too, the Dominican scapular is the white scapular that was given to us by Our Lady also. <laughs> and there are promises connected to that. So uh, I would say they're all devotional objects, and they have as much value as any devotional object does. In other words, they call to mind the mystery. In the case of the scapular, the mystery is very uh, deep because what you're doing, it was originally an apron worn by the monks in the desert. But eventually it became part of religious habits, and with St. Simon's Stock, of course, it was revealed as a part of the Carmelite habit. And the same with ours. Ours was revealed to Blessed Reginald. We didn't originally wear a scapular. But you have two sides for the hole in the middle. So that represents clothing yourself with both the two testaments, the Old and New Testament, and the two great commandments to love God and love your neighbor, And also, in the Middle Ages, it acquired a very definite connection 
to she who fulfills, you know, is a part of the fulfillment of the Old and New Testament and loves God and the neighbor, and that's Our Lady. So uh, I, I know some people tend to, they put scapulars under people's beds so they'll go to, won't go to hell or purgatory. Well, it, it doesn't quite work that way. It isn't a magic talisman. <laughs> like all sacramentals, it has to do with the devotion of the person wearing it. So it's a devotional object to encourage your devotion, your love for Mary. And in theory, at least, when you do that, you want to live the scriptures more and live the great commandments more. And therefore, you'll be prepared at death to go to heaven. Thanks so much. We appreciate that phone call, Michael. You know, it's funny, Father. There's a very devout family uh, that we were close to when we lived in Iowa. And when their oldest child went off to college, they were turning that child's room into uh, repurposing that room into something else. And, 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 and mom and dad were in the room taking the bed apart. And dad took the mattress off the box springs and found crucifixes and green scapulars and all this other stuff. And he says, my goodness, why on earth have you put all this stuff here? I don't know how she could sleep or something like that. And and his wife politely said, well, you have no idea what's under your side of the bed. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, it's like uh, both my mother and another priest I know, you know, we had so many devotional objects in our rooms that our parents used to remark, when I go into his room, I don't know whether to clean it or genuflect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Next stop for us is the great state of Iowa. And David is in Iowa listening on KMMK Radio. David, you're on with Father Brian. Hello. Um, I'm not actually a Catholic. I find myself working at Catholic Radio a lot recently, though. Um, I was actually wondering, as a non-Catholic, am I allowed to go to my local Catholic parish and partake of uh, the sacrament of confession? Um, well, you can partake of it, but you can't receive absolution. Uh, because you have to be baptized to receive, you know, as a Catholic to receive absolution. So there's nothing wrong with you confessing your sins if that gives you consolation. But and the priest can listen to you and give you advice, but you can't receive absolution until you're a member of the Catholic Church. And of course, it will be even more true of communion. You can't go to communion if you're not a practicing Catholic. Yeah. Thanks, David. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Rebecca in the great state of Michigan listening to Ave Maria Radio. Rebecca, you're on with Father Milady. Hi, thank you for uh, taking my call. I had a quick question. Um, I would like clarification as to what is the happy death and why people pray for it. Um, my mother-in-law... Um, she passed away a few weeks ago. She had um, cancer return, and she, she suffered through it for about two months and, you know, died. And I'm not sure what to say to my husband as far as to comfort him, because he told me, you know, that she prayed for many years for a happy death, and I just wanted to wonder, like, did she ever get it, and what I could say to him. Well, the happy death normally is considered to be like the death of St. Joseph, who's actually the person you pray for. For a happy death, that you're aware that you're dying in the arms of Jesus and Mary, and you love them whom you've loved all throughout your life. I'll give you an example of what I would consider to be a happy death. Uh, I knew a sister friend who died of bone cancer, and she suffered from it for three years. 
And she used to meditate on her death because she knew it was coming soon. And she'd say, look, this is going to be my death. My death is going to be a long tree-line drive. And Jesus is going to be at one end. And I'm going to be at the other end dressed in my bridal gown as a bride of Christ. And my death is going to be running down the tree-line drive and jumping into the arms of Jesus, my spouse, whom I have so loved and longed to see throughout my life. Now, that's basically what a happy death is. It doesn't mean the death is free from suffering, because sister certainly suffered greatly. Um, um, you know, she had to have her arm replaced and her hip replaced just so she could die because the bones had become so brittle they, they'd break. But uh, all throughout her sufferings, the people that took care of her in her home said, you know, we never had a patient. It was more of a pleasure to serve. She never talks about herself. She never talks about her sufferings. She's always cheerful. All she does is talk about us and manifest interest in our lives. And want uh, want to help us. She used to ask the young the young nurses, if they were doing the right thing with their boyfriends, <laughs> she was preparing for death. <laughs> um, I, I remember um, when uh, I was in her room about a month before she died, she grimaced, and I knew she was in uh, in great suffering. Now, to understand that, she had to realize that sometimes in religious life we experience uh, difficulties with the community, especially today when we disagree about so many things sometimes. And she grimaced as she moved, and I knew she was suffering in terrible agony. And so I said, come on, come clean. This is an act you're putting on for the audience, right? You're really suffering excruciating pain. And she looked up from the bed, and she smiled, and she said, oh, heck, compared to the mental anguish I've suffered in the convent for 50 years, Dying of bone cancer is a walk in the park. <laughs> she said, physical pain means nothing to me compared to the mental anguish I've suffered in my life. <laughs> so uh, you know, you know, there is a, such a thing as a happy death. And uh, we pray for it because, uh, as C.S. Lewis used to say, what is death but falling into the arms of him whom you loved and said you loved most throughout your life alone, alone? And uh, so it's, it's a, if, we, if we could reach that beautiful stage, which we could only do by grace and prayer, then even in the midst of excruciating agony, uh, I always like to say Carmelites die in excruciating diseases, praying and singing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way their death is. So. Yeah. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Be sure to check out Women Made New this Saturday at noon Eastern time. Women Made New is, is uh, it's real talk from Kristalina Everett and her guests on Catholic marriage and family in the 21st century. Great program every Saturday, noon Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. Still time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. You know, Father, once we, we sort of uh, give an assent to faith in the Catholic Church, uh, which was kind of my—I reached sort of a tipping point where maybe I didn't have all the answers, but I became confident if there, that if there was an answer I needed, I would get it down the road— 
But once we cross over that line, sometimes some of the simplest questions don't really trouble us anymore, and so we don't ponder them much. Um, but sometimes it's kind of good to visit them for those maybe who are struggling with them. And Roger sent us an email, and, and he simply wants to know, why do Catholics believe that salvation comes through baptism? We believe that salvation comes through baptism because Christ uh, gave a mandate to the apostles to baptize. And, of course, when you think about it, the sacraments are beautiful symbols of what they are, or the realities they, they mean. So baptism was actually practiced uh, not just by Jews, the Essenes, etc., but it was even practiced by pagan cults around the time of Christ. And it was the idea that people knew that we weren't the way we were supposed to be. And so uh, they were washing themselves clean of those things that they found to be inhuman. But they also, remember, because water is not only death-giving, it's also life-giving. They were also looking on the waters as the origin of new life, as we see, for example, in the great river that flows in the right side of the temple in Ezekiel. So there are many, many reasons why the, the actual action of baptism is connected with uh, bringing forth a new man. Uh, children are basically in an aqueous womb, you know, water, and uh, when they're in their mother's womb. And uh, the baptismal font was also referred to as a womb in which we became a new creation. So Christ himself approved this rite and approved all these things when he himself touched the waters in the Jordan when John baptized him. Now, he didn't need to be baptized personally, but he did this as a revelation. And you remember the Trinity testifies to him there too. So... John's baptism was under repentance. People knew they weren't the way they were supposed to be. But Christ's baptism is by way of giving life too. So in ancient baptismal fonts in Israel, I meant when I made a pilgrimage to Israel, they didn't practice immersion much there because they didn't have a lot of water. But they had a, a kind of hole in the ground, and there were seven steps and on each of the seven steps, they would go down and remove one of the seven capital sins. Then they'd be baptized. And then on each of the seven steps, they symbolically would receive the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit as they went back up. So Christ, remember, commissioned the apostles, go therefore into the whole world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Alan in Oxford, Wisconsin, listening on the Amazon Echo. Alan, you're on with Father Brian. Oh, hi, Father Brian. Yeah, my question was um, about absolution. I, it seems that, is there different types of absolution, and, and how do they work? I wasn't aware there are different types of absolution. Oh, okay. What are you referring to? I was at uh, a conference they had a bunch of like oh you mean colleges. like general absolution and personal absolution yeah yeah and plus he said that i could also give absolution to another person in purgatory and uh, no 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 that's uh, no 
you can offer your sufferings that that person will be free from the temporal punishment due to their sin, but not from eternal punishment, which is what confession's about. And if you're talking about general absolution, unfortunately in our church for a number of years, pastors tended to practice that, and an individual confession was greatly underemphasized, but the church reacted greatly against that because that's not, there are conditions under which you can receive general absolution. One would be an army going into battle where you don't have, you know, obviously you've got thousands of men. You can't hear confession. The priest can give them general absolution. But there are canonical conditions to that. And that is if they survive the battle, they have to mention that sin and confession that they were absolved from. And uh, they can't receive another general absolution. And, and there were many conditions placed on that. And then, then there were also people that told people, well, you only have to say one sin. No, it's all remembered mortal sins, kind and number, since your last confession. So it isn't sufficient to just say one sin, unless it's a venial sin, of course, obviously. You don't have any mortal sins. Awesome. Thanks so much, Alan. We appreciate that phone call. Next up is Rachel, a first-time caller in Houston, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Rachel, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, Father, uh, m'lady, uh, I was just wondering if you could just explain a little bit of the the uh, readings when it, it mentions the new skin and the old skin. I just don't understand it, and it seems like I've heard it. Of course, I've heard, I've heard it often, but I don't understand it. Oh, you mean the wineskins? Yeah. No one puts the, oh, my goodness. Well, that's a very difficult passage. <laughs> and uh, I was in when I was in Rome, there was a person studying Scripture, a Dominican from Belgium, who unfortunately died at a very young age. But he was, one of the things they had to comment on was the Christ saying about the skins. And he says, I can't, the skins, the skins, the skins, no one <laughs> seems to know what this passage means. <laughs> you know? And the, the old, what is it, the uh, new cloth or the old cloth on the new cloth or whatever, right. or the patch or rip. My, my general under, understanding of that passage is that what Christ is referring to is that in the New Testament, uh, you're not you, you don't just go back to the Old Testament regarding the promises and the and um, what the commandments involve as such without the love of God being fully present. They're oriented to the love of God, but remember that the old law doesn't in itself forgive sins. The new law of Christ is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart, so it does forgive sins. Now, that's one interpretation. But as I say, I, I, this poor man, I, I suffered with him for two months of this. What does the skins mean, he'd say. <laughs> I don't, and, of course, he was doing scripture research in an academic way with all these books, and he couldn't figure it out. And I had the impression that it was a difficult passage, yes. Thanks, so Rachel. Just, I don't have too much more light to give you on that. So. <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate that phone call. Uh, Angie writes in. She says, what does it mean that Jesus has a soul? I don't understand how a divine being could have a soul. Well, because Jesus has two natures. 
He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. And we say he's true God and true man in the creed, right? So that means altogether God and altogether man. Well, to be a human being, you have to have a human body and a human soul. And Jesus does. So he has a human intellect, a human will, and human passions. And because he unites them to the person, remember the union occurs in the person of the word. So each nature retains what's proper to itself. You don't mix them together. You don't have one destroy the other. They're, they're both together, but they're together in a communion of life. So how many intellects would there be in Jesus of Nazareth when he was born from Mary's womb? Two, a divine intellect and a human intellect. How many wills would there be? Two, a divine will and a human will. When we talk about the knowledge of Christ and its difficulties, we don't mean as God. Jesus obviously knows everything as God. But we're talking about the enlightenment of his human intellect and his human soul. And uh, there were heresies that maintained uh, that uh, the divinity replaced the human soul in Christ. Well, or even the human intelligence. Well, that's impossible. And one of the reasons is because Christ was obedient unto death as man. Now, you can't be obedient as man if you don't have a human soul, because that's where you're obedient. So, uh, remember, we have to go with the words of the creed, because it took him hundreds of years to figure this out. He's altogether God and altogether man. And altogether man means having a human soul and a human body. Well, Father, another hour has flown by. Would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Back at it tomorrow, Open Line Friday, with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together then... God bless.